Today's podcast will be talking about healthcare in the United States, among other topics like abortion, climate change, and, and you know what we can do to help save the environment. Um, but the meat of this podcast is going to be focusing on healthcare in the United States and what makes it so expensive, what laws and regulations are in place um, that are decreasing the supply of healthcare, which is leading to the rise in cost. So the first thing I do want to talk about is just to get off the just to get the basis, healthcare is expensive in the United States compared to other industrialized countries. We do spend much more money on healthcare than they do. A broken leg costs an average of $2,500 in the United States. Um, and if we, if we want, we can start comparing our costs. Um, we can start comparing our costs compared to other countries across the across the world using an organization called the OECD. The OECD is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. And it's an intergovernmental economic organization to help countries stimulate economic progress and world trade. Um, so, looking at the statistics, the U.S. spends way more on healthcare than any other OECD country. This is, these are 2013 statistics. Um, the U.S. spends uh, $8,713 per person, which uh, in 2013 was which was 16.4% of its GDP on healthcare. The OECD average is three thousand four hundred fifty-three, so just under thirty-five hundred dollars. So we are spending more than double the average. Um, Germany spends just under five thousand five thousand dollars. France spends just over four thousand dollars. And the United Kingdom spends a little over three thousand dollars on healthcare. Now, in twenty seventeen, the U.S. spending rose to eighteen percent of its GDP on healthcare. Much of this money is actually coming from the cost of Medicare, Medicaid, and other programs like CHIP, Children's Health Insurance Program. Um, it's also worth noting that the U.S. spends uh, spends seventy billion dollars on health care provided by the VA every year. Um, so we're obviously spending a lot of money on health care. We're obviously taking an initiative to take care of our citizens' health care and to make that a priority, but we're just not being efficient enough with it. We're spending all this money into it, and we're not seeing a great result. So we have to start looking at, okay, well, what's, what's, what's in the way? Why are we spending this money and not, we're not getting good returns? Um, and the first thing that I do want to talk about is um, something called a certificate of need. Um, if you guys can hear, I have pages upon pages of pages on statistics and different data and you know rulings um, which do which are impacting the cost of healthcare. Um, but like I said, the first thing I do want to talk about is a certificate of need. So a certificate of need, once I can find the page for it, a certificate of need is a um it was it was federal is it was institutionalized uh, it was instituted not institu sorry guys instituted on a uh, national level in 1974. Um, it was started, it, the program was started in the early 60s, but on a, in the uh, mid-70s it was taken to the federal level. And what it is, is a they, uh, certificate of need, is re uh, they're required for the construction of medic medical facilities and are issued by the state health care agencies. Um, and it's not just, it's not just the construction um, from the ground up, it can also be um, uh, in addition to expanding to existing facilities, so say the Cleveland Clinic wants to build a children's ward, they would have to go to, not in Ohio they wouldn't have to do this, but in many other states, Ohio actually has some of the leanest, uh, uh, or not leanest, they actually have the um, easiest CON laws in the country. CON laws still shouldn't be a thing in the first place, but Ohio is very easy on it. Um, but say Cleveland Clinic wanted to expand and create a children's ward, they would have to go to the Ohio state healthcare agencies and get that permission to build that uh, that addition on. Um, sadly enough, you know, 35 states, um, in, uh, not including DC, so including DC, 36 states have see some sort of CON laws. Um, in the in the late seven, or in the late 80s, the federal government realized that these programs weren't um, helping to decrease costs. Initially, the, the program was put into place to help decrease costs specifically for low-income areas. Um, and in the late 80s, the federal government saw that this program wasn't working, and so they left it up to the states to decide if they wanted to keep these laws in place. Like I said, 36, law, 36 states um, have some sort of CON laws. States like North Carolina, Michigan, Vermont, 
they have the highest amount of CON laws in the country. Um, so we can start looking at the data that these laws are putting into place and also the, the, the principles behind them. So by restricting the new construction of medical facilities or um, different buildings in different additions, this, these CON programs may reduce competition and keep prices high. Think of it as grocery stores, you know, if, this, if you have to go to the state to get permission to build a grocery store and that, that the state says, okay, well, you have a grocery store a couple miles away, you can just drive to that one or walk to that one or take the bus to that one. You don't need one closer to you. Or you want a uh, grocery store that provides more, uh, more organic foods. Uh, they say, okay, well, you don't really need that. This grocery store is providing good enough food. No, we're not going to allow you to build a new grocery store. Obviously, this is ridiculous. You need to let the free market thrive um, and let the free market fail if it needs to, to in, in order to better develop uh, different services. So, if we want to keep looking at it. Um, the potential for these CON uh, grants to be uh, granted uh, is based on um, political influence. So say the Cleveland Clinic donates to Sherrod Brown. Sherrod Brown is then in turn going to allow Cleveland Clinic to expand while not allowing smaller hospitals or smaller healthcare service providers to expand and or grow, therefore creating some sort of vacuum or monopoly um, in the healthcare service industry. Um, they, these are also based on the their grants. They, these are granted on the basis of institutional prestige. So again, they're only going to allow Cleveland Clinic. Cleveland Clinic is a great hospital. I shouldn't. I, I don't want to speak negatively about it. My mom works for Cleveland Clinic, and you know they do a great job um, with everything. But if you're only allowing one business or one company to grow and not allowing other companies to grow, you are therefore interfering in the free market, and therefore prices are going to be higher. I, I mean. For conservatives and people who believe in supply-side economics, this really isn't hard to see why these laws are increasing prices. Um, if you want to take a deeper dive into that, you know, you, we, we can do that uh, individually. But if you understand supply-side economics, this all makes sense. Um, these are, you know, and they ignore the, the needs of the community. So say you have a community that we could take Florida for an example. Florida is a state that has a high uh, percentage or a high population of elderly people. So therefore, you're going to have a lot of facilities that give assistance to um, uh, that give assistance to elderly people, including nursing homes, nursing facilities, and assisted living facilities. Um, and actually, these are these are the only things that are impacted by C Ohio's CON laws are long ter long term care facilities. Um, so it's it's interesting, but if you're only if if you're going to, if you're Florida and you're restricting that that access of these kind of facilities, of course prices are going to get higher because there's no competition between different companies and different businesses to keep their prices lower. And it's absolutely ridiculous, again, that states are allowing these things to continue on. Um, if, we, if we can actually start looking at the kind of production and uh, the kind of statistics that these, these laws impact on us per state basis. So uh, states with CON laws have a reduction of around 37% in the number of hospitals offering CAT scans. Um, states with CON laws have far fewer resources to offer, you know, whether it's hospital beds, MRIs, CAT scans, like I said, um, or other services. Um, in states, and actually if we want to take a look at North Carolina and Michigan, um, 13,000 fewer hospital beds are available because of these over-regulating laws. It's not 13,000 combined from North Carolina or Michigan. It's 13,000 in both North Carolina and Michigan, which means 26,000 people are not able to get the health care that they need because the state didn't allow certain hospitals to you know, put in more hospital beds or to build a new facility. Um, again, you're decreasing the supply of health care, which is going to rise the price. Um, in, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous, like I said, that states are still doing this. It, it creates, there's a lot of things that go into healthcare costs and why they're rising, but this is a huge part of it. Um, if you want to see the increase in, if you want to see the decrease in costs in healthcare, all you really have to do is increase the supply. Um, and part of this is actually what I think could be done um, 
And I think we, if, if we start taking the regulations off, you'll start to see prices decrease. Um, specifically, if we allow specific service providers um, to flourish, they offer straightforward services like such as MRIs or x-rays. So if you break your arm and you need a cast, you can go to Kathy's x-rays on the corner of Turney and 3rd and they'll give you an x-ray. You could then take that x-ray to a hospital or even a cast, uh, a cast providing service and you can get that service provided to you on a cheaper cost. If you break it down instead of, if you break it down to the specific service that you need, you're going to pay an over, uh, a lower price or lower cost overall at the end rather than going to the hospital and getting an x-ray and then getting a cast and having to wait a couple days for the x-rays to come back or having to wait a couple days to get the cast. You're, the, the, the process will be much cheaper, much faster, uh, and much easier. So those are the three things of cap, the capitalism. Simple, better, faster, cheaper. Additionally, when you go to a hospital, um, you're, the price that you're paying for a service isn't always the price that a service costs. So a, say a back surgery might cost, I think back surgeries cost up to $150,000, which is absolutely insane that you have to pay $150,000 for a back surgery. Um, but that price might be so high, not because the the labor and the work and the, the resources in back, sur back surgery is expensive, it might be because uh, other, other services are cheaper in cost and therefore the hospital has to make up in profit. Um, to cover the to cover the other the services. So if you only if you're only doing X-rays or if you're only doing MRIs, um, your cost is of course going to be lower because you're only providing one source or you're only providing one service. Um, additionally, uh, if if we can start looking at you know the importance of shopping around for healthcare and shopping around for the best price, um, this is a little bit of a tricky situation because you can't really shop around when you're in a hospital or when you're not ambulance on the way to the hospital suffering from a heart attack, right? Um, but if you're a parent and you have children who play sports, or if you work in a very in a, in a construction industry or something, and you know that you're at a, you're at a higher risk for um, for health service for a need for health service, you should be shopping around for healthcare. Um, and shopping around for healthcare isn't as hard as some people think it is. There are multiple sites that help consumers estimate out-of-pocket prices based on their insurance plan. In many cases, consumers can log into their insurance company's websites um, and compare their individual out-of-pocket out costs um, for procedures at different hospitals. This, uh, of course, this allows you to look, and this, this is how it should be, this is allowing you to look at the different costs for different services at different hospitals and being able to pick which one it is. But because insurance company, it's how healthcare works is, the, health, the hospitals have to appeal to the insurance providers because the, ho the, health, the hospitals know that they're going to get the money regardless. They know that they're going to get the money regardless from either from the government or from the insurance companies. They're hardly ever getting the money from you. They're getting the money from the insurance company. Um, so of course, if they're going to, uh, if they're going, and it's the same thing for tu university tuition costs. Of course, if you know that you're going to get that money, why wouldn't you just increase the cost? Well, I'm, you know, I know I'm going to get the money, so you know, we might as well just raise a couple thousand dollars just to cover the cost of, you know, uh, uh, Becky, you know, Becky missing her, uh, Becky missing her shift or something. Um, of course, you're going to increase the price. If I'm selling lemonade on the side of the t on the side of the road and I'm charging two dollars for it, and I know that people are going to be paying four dollars because people are paying four dollars at a hospital or a lemonade stand across the road, and I'm only paying, I'm only charging two dollars. Yes, I might, I might get, I might get more. Um, people coming over to me, but I'm just going to increase the price to four dollars if I know that I'm going to get money. If I know I'm going to get that money, um, this really isn't a hard concept to understand. Um, uh, additionally, and uh, you know, oh, I you know, I openly say I voted for Trump in 2016 because I don't like Hillary Clinton. I still don't like Hillary Clinton. Uh, she's an evil person. I don't think she has good good intentions behind her. Um, but I do call balls and strikes for the Trump administration. I do call it out when he's do when he does something good, and I do call it out when I do when he does something bad. And one of the things that you know the Trump administration is doing good, and I, I think that it's is not getting enough attention, is the Trump administration is proposing a rule that would require hospitals to post their charges before insurance on their website. I, I think this is an important thing to do for when you're shopping around, not when you're shopping around for healthcare, but when you're shopping around for insurance providers. Um, you can you can look for insurance providers who are choosing lower cost healthcare rather than high qual high 
a higher costing healthcare. As in everything, higher price doesn't mean a better quality. You know, um, sh uh, sh shoppers who use cost evaluating tools also save thirty six percent over people who don't. Um, so again, if you're do if you're going into this and you're thinking about this and you're thinking about health insurance or healthcare costs, please shop around. Please do some research before you do that. Um, so the next topic I want to get to about why healthcare is expensive in the United States. Um, might be a little bit, it might kind of pick at some people's uh, uh, emotions, and a lot of people aren't going to like this, but it needs to be said. We are a lazy, unresponsible society. As a country, we're lazy, we expect things to be done by other people, not by ourselves. We don't take, uh, we don't, we expect to have actions without consequences, and when those consequences do come around, we don't take them properly or we don't take them as as the adults that we are and that we should take them as um i'm referring to the rising cost the rising uh rising cases of chronic illnesses in our country over the past few decades specifically obesity like i said we are a fat country we eat out we are lazy we don't play many sports my generation is changing this my generation is taking a more serious look at healthcare or not healthcare uh with health um, and making sure that they're working out, making sure that they're eating right, and making sure that they're choosing a healthier lifestyle. But older, past generations um, didn't have this, didn't take this much of a serious look at it. Um, patients with chronic illnesses in their last two years of life uh, amount for account for about 32% of the total Medicare spending in the United States. <clears throat> so one third uh, of Medicare spending is spent on uh, people who have chronic illnesses and spent on their last two the last few years of their life. Among other high-income countries, the U.S. has higher, uh, much higher rate of chronic illnesses and a lower lower overall life expect expectancy. And I see this kind of thing all the time on Twitter and on Facebook, where people are like, "Oh, well, the United States doesn't have the highest highest quality of life care, therefore, you know, it, it has to be tied to, or uh, it has to be tied to the health care that's provided." Um, you know, since we don't, we have the, we don't have the highest uh, overall life expectancy. No, that's, <laughs> Becky, that's not the case. That's, that's not how this works. We're a fat country. We don't take, we don't take care of ourselves. We don't work out. We eat at McDonald's every day and we fit our kids at McDonald's. Of course, uh, of course, healthcare is going to be expensive. And of course, we're going to have lower overall high, uh, life expectancy. The prevalence of obesity in U.S. adults was 39.8, so almost 40% of U.S. adults uh, are affected by obesity. Um, that's 93.3 million people, and that's just adults. Obesity in children is much higher than people think it is, and it's a much serious thing that I think people need to take care and need to take note of. Um, Obesity-related conditions include stuff like heart disease, stroke, type 2 diabetes, um, <clears throat> and certain types of cancer, and it's estimated that the annual medical cost of obesity is $147 billion. Um, additionally, if you are somebody who suffers with obesity or suffers with conditions from obesity, every year you're going to be spending just under $1,500 more on healthcare than somebody who with somebody who doesn't have obesity would. Um, so this started to get me thinking about the different kinds of um, issues that stem from obesity. And I was interested in looking at what some of the most expensive um, things to treat are in the United States. So if you go to a hospital, what are, the, what are the, some of the most expensive things that you're going to have to pay for? Um, and here are, the top, here are some of the things that are in the top 12. <clears throat> you have heart disease at number one. Heart disease and stroke is the number one thing, number mo one most expensive disease to treat in uh, America. Coming at number three is cancer. Coming at number five is diabetes. Number seven is arthritis, which is worsened by obesity. Number eight is kidney disease, um, and the two main causes of kidney disease are diabetes and high blood pressure. <clears throat> Ten is obesity itself, is uh, one of the most expensive diseases to treat in America. And number eleven is high blood pressure. So that's seven of the top twelve most expensive things to treat in the United States are caused by obesity. So if we start hitting the gym more often, and if we start taking this more serious look at what we're putting into our bodies, in our lifestyle, and our lifestyle choices, it might you might start to see that impact on healthcare costs because because we're 
we're, we have a much lower demand for healthcare. Again, supply side economics, you have a much lower demand, and if you have a higher supply of something, you're going to have a lower cost. Right now, we have a low supply of healthcare with a high demand of uh, healthcare, um, with stuff like Medicare, Medicaid, and all the all the trips that we take to the hospital by by things like obesity. Of course, healthcare costs are going to be high. Again, when you look at it from the when you look at this from a uh, supply side economic point of view, this all makes perfect sense. Um, but one of the things I want to look at that gives us a little shimmer of hope of how we can lower costs is um, if we can look at LASIK. So I had a friend who had LASIK um, a couple years ago, really cool experience. Um, uh, a couple, uh, back in 1997, it wasn't as easy and it wasn't as cool, right? It used to cost $8,000 per eye. You'd, do, you'd get one eye done, come back in six weeks, and then you would get another eye done. So it cost $16,000 total. In between those treatments, you'd, uh, you, you'd look like Dan Crenshaw. I love Dan Crenshaw. He's a great guy from, uh, from Texas, really personable. But you'd look like Dan Crenshaw while you're waiting for your, um, your second uh, LASIK eye surgery to be done. Um, and it's done by a doctor with a knife. It's not done how it is today. Hopefully that doctor um, isn't going through a divorce or had their cup of coffee or even didn't have too much coffee because it's done by a doctor with a knife. Um, today it's done with computer-guided laser. It's a really, it's a really smooth, um, easy, precise process that happens. It takes less than 10 minutes um, with really only a minute of that being of the actual procedure. Um, after the procedure, you take a three-hour nap and you wake up with perfect vision. Like I said, I had a friend who had uh, LASIK a couple years ago, helped her out with it, and um, it's exactly what that is. It's she she went in for the procedure, and you have to watch the whole thing if you can. Like Google like LASIK surgeries, and they're really really cool. Um, I got to watch the whole thing. Took her home, um, and she she napped and she woke up, and I think she was in tears because like she's never had that kind of vision before. She's always worn glasses or contacts. And I think she paid just like just around fifteen hundred dollars for the whole procedure. Um, it's a really great example of what the free market can what the free market can do um, in healthcare when you know when things are meant to be how they are. Um, and that's because LASIK isn't really covered by healthcare insurance because LASIK is seen as a uh, not needed procedure. It's an elective procedure, so it's gonna be it's not gonna be covered, which means it's gonna be paid for out of pocket. And when something is paid for out of pocket, when consumers are forced to pay out of pocket, um, what happens is consumers are more likely to sh ask what the price is for the procedure and shop around for the best deal. Um, really, they're, they're going to get a high quality LASIK procedure no matter where you go just because of how precise lasers are. Um, and prices, prices have dropped. Like I said, my friend had, my friend spent, I think, like $1,500. I don't even think she had to take a loan out for this. She spent $1,500 on her LASIK, and she has perfect vision um, for the rest of her life. They said that she might have to get a touch-up down the road or something like that, but, um, but yeah, I mean, nearly perfect vision just for $1,500. You go in for, a meet, you go in for uh, an appointment beforehand. They see exactly what they need to do to your eyes. I don't know exactly what LASIK entails and exactly what they do, but you do go in for a procedure beforehand. They check out your eye. They, it's just an, it's just like a normal eye appointment, and then you go in for the next procedure, and you're all done. You're all you go in for an hour, uh, just for the waiting room and the the uh, to kind of wait for your next turn. But the whole procedure, like I said, takes ten minutes. Super smooth, super accurate, and like I said, it's a really really good example of what happens when you allow the free market to flourish in healthcare. Um. So I mean that's that's really it. Uh, there's a couple other things like like what we can do um, with insurance with our with our society specifically people my age being um, being 22. I'm on my parents' health insurance until I'm 25, I believe. Um, but once you're once you're off your parents' health insurance, you really should start getting health insurance right away. Um, you know, if you compare it to car insurance, you don't buy in car insurance after an accident. You buy it beforehand to cover you if something does happen. Um, whether you're someone who tends to drive over the speed limit or whether you're somebody who doesn't know where the front of their car is, um, your car insurance is going to cover you. Additionally, the type of car that you drive, your uh, accident history and your traffic violations are going to impact your car insurance price. So if you're somebody with a Tesla, you, routine, you routinely drive 90 down 40 west and um, you, you have a high, you have a history of uh, accidents. Yeah, you're you're gonna pay more for car insurance because you're you're more of a risk for the car insurance to cover you. 
But if you're somebody who drives a 2005 Honda CRV, you've only had one speeding ticket and you've never had an accident, your price, your car insurance payment is going to be very, very low. We could do the same thing with insurance. You can encourage people to get health insurance at an earlier, earlier stage in their life. <clears throat> um, and the prices can vary on lifestyle. You know, your price will go down if you work out, if you don't smoke, or if you don't drink heavily, and you have another healthy, uh, healthy living style. Um, say you're vegan or something. Uh, vegan is something I do want to take a serious look at. Um, but if, say you're vegan, your 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 health insurance might go down. Additionally, your price will go up if you don't work out, if you gain weight, if you smoke and drink heavily. Um, yes, we're forcing people to make better lifestyle decisions. Again, this is not something I don't think a lot of you are going to want to hear that you guys aren't making smart life choices and there are going to be there are going to be consequences for that. So companies need to kind of take the take the action and be like, okay, well we're going to force you to make better living styles and if you don't, you're going to you're going to quite literally pay the cost either with if, if it's with your wallet or with your uh, health health uh, with your with your general well-being. Um Another thing that's kind of silly is that in the United States, you can't buy health insurance over state lines. You're forced to buy health insurance within the state that you reside. Um, it's not like this in any other uh, in any other field where you have to stay in the state of where you're living to buy a product that's in your state. Um, so open up the markets. Uh, another thing that I want to talk about is uh, something where, again, you're limiting the supply of who can give health care. Um, so when you go, say say you have stomach stomach aches and you've been throwing up for days, and you say, okay, I really need to go to the hospital. When you go to the hospital, you go to the first waiting room where you're waiting for somebody to check in on you, and then somebody you you hear your name is called, and, you, and then you go to what I call the second waiting room, where you're waiting and waiting and waiting for a physician to come and see you. They check on your vitals, they kind of give you a diagnosis, and then they give you a prescription. I don't believe that you need a physician. To do this. I believe that a lot of the things that people go to the, the hospital for can be done and can be um, can be properly performed by think, people like nurse practitioners, right? Nursing is a high is a very high important. Um, it's a it's a field that a lot of people go into in college. Um, so it's not like we have any shortage of nurses or nurse practitioners, um, but we really really don't need physicians doing little menial stuff like that. If the nurse practitioner is saying, okay, well, here are the symptoms. I went in and checked on him, and, you know, I, I really don't know. What, I can't put my finger on it. Then I believe, yeah, the physician can go in and take a second look, but you're going to pay a, you're gonna pay a higher price for that. Um, so uh, if, you use, if you're using physicians less, um, uh, if, you're using a higher, if you're using a higher cost service, which is using the physician's service, if you're using the higher cost service more often, prices will increase. If you're using the lower cost service, nurse practitioners, costs will go down as well. This is, a non, this is not an exhausted, exhausted list on healthcare and why healthcare is so expensive in the United States. Trust me, it's not. I really do want to take a deep dive uh, in patent laws in the United States. Um, one of those uh, was the Drug Price Competition and Patent Term Restoration Act. I know long, I, these, these laws have long names. Um, it was passed by the Reagan administration and it extended patents beyond 20 years, um, and it also allows uh, f uh, pharmaceutical companies to bribe physicians to pre prescribe more expensive drugs. Absolutely ridiculous. This is the kind of crony capitalism that conservatives and people like me despise. You're not allowing the free market to work properly. You're not allowing um, lower lower cost products to be used more often, and therefore have, forcing higher cost products to um, compete with that industry and with that service. Um, laws like this need to be reformed or done away with completely. More, like I said, this is not an exhausted list of why healthcare is expensive in the first place. Like I said earlier, we have a higher demand for healthcare in the United States um, with Medicare and Medicaid. Um, again, this, this all boils down to we have high demand of healthcare with our, our national health care services that we provide. We have a high demand for health care with our un unhealthy living styles and we we use the hospitals frequently. My mother works in a hospital. She tells me that people come into the ER like it's just like it's nothing. Um, and of course you have the when you have a high supply 
or when you have a high demand of healthcare and you have a low supply, like we've seen with the CON laws that I've explained, like we've seen with using um, physicians for everything. Uh, when you when you're not allowing certain drugs into the into the field, which is which is I think another thing that Trump needs to get a, a credit for is the um, the first step or the first uh, right to try act, right to try. Um, you know, if you have a if you have a terminal illness, and you have there's a there's a um, you know a, a a medicine that's not hasn't been approved by the FDA yet, um, but you're saying, hey, well, I'm gonna die regardless. So you might as well just use me as your guinea pig. Um, let people do that. Let people have that control of their life and what they put into their body. Um, the 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 thought that you're not that we can't allow terminally ill people to use products that haven't been approved by the FDA yet is silly to me. Um, and I think Trump does need to get a lot of credit for passing that first uh, right to try act. Um, you know, I plan to come out with another podcast in the future on additional costs and, and additional reasons why healthcare is expensive. Um, but like I said, I've, I've spent a lot of time reading articles and doing research and gathering data about this. Um, and this is what I've come up with. Again, we're lowering, we're lowering the supply of healthcare and we're also increasing the demand. Healthcare is going to, healthcare is going to become more expensive. Um, so there's a couple things that I wanted to talk about at the end of this podcast. They're not small things whatsoever. They're small little tidbits that I, I think I can chime in on and give an uh, opinion to. And one of those is climate change. Um, I see all over Twitter and all over Facebook. You know, we don't, you know, humans don't care about our impact on the world. And, you know, the United States just, you know, pouring toxic stuff into the atmosphere, into our land, and that we're killing, that we're killing Mother Earth. Um, and that the, what, the people don't care about what we do to the environment. Drives me insane. Absolutely insane. Because people, and this is why I kind of do these podcasts, is because I believe people are super ignorant. I believe people use Twitter as their source of political thought, and that they don't dive deeper into the, um, the reason behind that political thought, or the history of the political thought, like socialism. People see that, oh yeah, free college, that'd be really cool, but like, you know, how, how well has free college worked out in other countries? Free healthcare would be pretty cool. Okay, well, what about those waiting, waiting lines in Canada? Um, you know, it, it, people are very ignorant to facts and to history, and that's why I do these podcasts. And I, another thing that people are very, very ignorant on is climate change, and the, the, specifically the, West, the, the industrialized countries' impact on climate change, um, and the U.S.'s impact on climate change. The West is doing more than anybody else to help uh, our help reduce our, uh, our our carbon footprint and our emissions into the environment and our destruction of the environment. We are doing our our best to and, I, and to say without many government regulations. There are government regulations on what you can and can't do with plastics and what you can and can't put into the water and what you can and can't do to put in the air. But compared to other countries. We don't have too many regulations um, compared to like Europe and everything. A lot of the efforts that are being driven by to save the environment are by the private sector, are by are by companies who are developing products that harness tidal energy so that we don't have to keep using coal. You know, I believe that I believe that you will see the rise of a green a new form of green energy within the next 25 years, and it won't come from a government funded program like the Green New Deal. It will, it will come from pri the private sector. It will come from uh, uh, companies uh, researching and developing um, algae that is able to produce um, some sort of gas that is able to produce power. I believe it's going to come from these companies that are uh, producing uh, and I mean these aren't this isn't just scientific science fiction anymore. this is this is real real life, that these products are in place today. They may not be as efficient as they can be, but we're, you know, these are, these are the building blocks to what is the future. Um, you're also seeing um, nonprofit organizations go out and clean up the, the trash that are in the oceans. I think it's Sweden that um, actually imports trash and burns it as a fuel. Um, I don't know exactly what they do, but I, knew, I do know that one of the Nordic countries does have to import trash because they are so efficient at turning their trash into, and um, instead of putting it in landfills, using it as a renewable form of energy. Um, there are forms of energy that aren't as efficient, like windmill, like wind energy and uh, solar energy, um, that 
if you know as long as the free market develops further if the production um, of these if the production of these sources of energy is more efficient um, then yes I think it's a viable option but I think that the free market should be allowed to continue to evaluate what is what is a the best way to create a new form of green, green energy and this also takes me to what I think is hurting the environment the most and it, it's Another thing that I give Trump a lot of credit for is pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord. It was completely inefficient, and it was giving countries like China, uh, it was letting them off the hook for their for their impact on climate change. Um, it, they they listed China as it's still a developing country, and so they're they're allowing China to kick that can down the road and saying, well, you can wait ten to twelve years before you um, really before you have to reduce your emissions. Well, according to AOC and Cory Booker and all the other all the all the other Democrats, we only have ten to twelve years left on the on the Earth before the Earth completely melts down. Um, you know, so why are we going to let China, you know, wait that ten or twelve years? If you're allow, if you're only putting the pressure on, you know, the industrialized world, um, and not forcing other, and China is not a developing country. Let's just make that clear. China is not a developing country. They are the second highest GDP in the world. They are not. I mean, their citizens do have a much lower living style because China is a communist state, and all the all the wealth and power is uh, allocated to the very, very rich and the very, very powerful. Um, people out in the rural parts of China are living much, much worse than people out in the rural parts of America. Um, I, I say this all the time: the poor in America would thrive in China. Um, but China is not a developing country. It is a developed, industrialized country. It's just still communist, which I think it's kind of funny that they, they label a communist country as developing. I think communist countries are always going to be developing because it's a shitty system. But my, that point aside, um, <laughs> that point aside, it's ridiculous that we're not, not forcing China to take part in this global this global fight against climate change and this global fight to help clean the environment china's just china's able to just dump their their plastics into the ocean and they they're not forced to reduce their emissions into the the um, the atmosphere because it's not going to be fair for them to develop like no they they are a developed country they have the money and the resources to produce cleaner to have a cleaner energy source of energy, but the problem is, since they're a communist state and they have nobody to compete with, they're not forced to use cleaner products. They just use whatever product is there for them at the at at, at the ready. Which is why communism uses slave labor because communism views its citizens as just another resource. They just view then that's why communism has a history of just killing off its citizens. You know, you, with the Ukrainian famines to pull pot. To, to China in the Great Leap Forward. Communism has always, has always reduced it, reduced the, the living standard in whatever country it's been tried in. And it's always led to the failure, and I believe China will see another Tiananmen Square coming up in the next 10 years. The next thing I want to talk about, and I really didn't want to talk about this, um, because I think it's just been dragged on over and over, and there's far too many voices in this, in this topic, is um, the current climate on abortion and the access to abortion in our country. Back in the 1990s, abortion used to be this thing where it was safely, it was supposed to be safe, legal, and rare, right? Um, now it's abortion should be, you know, used by everybody who gets pregnant. Um, it, so my personal beliefs on, you know, life and abortion is that life, my, I personally believe, I'm a Catholic, I'm my, I, and I believe that life begins at conception. Um, and that I believe that all forms of abortion really are egregious, disgusting, and evil. Um, but I'm not going to impose my personal beliefs, especially if they're if they're rooted in religion. I'm not going to force those beliefs into law. And I'm not going to force those beliefs on anybody else because I understand that everybody else has a different viewpoint, and that their viewpoints stem from different, you know, um, personal experiences. So again, I'm always going to understand. I'm always going to try to understand and reason with somebody who agrees with abortion up to birth. You know, they have a reason why they agree with that. Um, and you just kind of need to meet them in the middle and find out why they uh, why they believe that at the core. And then you can kind of 
try to have that conversation. You're not going to be able to have that conversation with somebody who you fundamentally agree with and don't you don't try to see where they're coming from. Um, but the reason why I'm talking about this is because I've seen, again, with the climate change thing, I've seen a lot of ignorant and very ill-informed arguments for for abortion in our in our in our society in our culture in our culture um specifically the well we're going to force an 11 year old girl who gets raped to um to have an to, to carry through the pregnancy you know i i don't believe that it's right to kill a child just because they were for they were and it is a child let's let's get that clear when you're pregnant Nobody's asking you, well, when's the clump of cells due? Everybody's asking you, when's the baby due? What's the gender of your baby? Um, how's your baby doing? It's, it is a child. I think, I think that we need to, we need to clear that up. Um, it's just that we have a, we, our, our culture has a different, um, we don't have a unified idea of when life begins. Some people begin, think life begins at birth. Some people like me think life begins at conception, and that's a huge gap that I think that we, we need to bridge. I believe that a reasonable, a reasonable cutoff date for abortion and a reasonable acceptance date of um, when life begins is uh, when we see the commonality of premature babies surviving their, their early birth. Um, if babies are being born halfway through pregnancies or during the first trimester or whenever, if babies are being born during this time, and it's and it's a common it's a common thing for them to survive um, the birth un, you know, under in a hospital under severe uh, you know under constant care. I believe that we should cut off the, the the line for abortion there. I believe that you know if if you're gonna allow that uh, if you're gonna allow those people to carry through an abortion with a baby that could be prematurely born and survive the survive the birth, I think that's disgusting because if that baby is born and then the mother decides, you know, I don't want this responsibility, uh, I think that's very ignorant. And th th those parents would go to jail if they killed that baby. Um, so that's, those are my thoughts on, th on that. Um, I also, again, we're a very irresponsible culture, and a lot of you aren't going to like to hear this, and I'm going to get a lot of hate for this, but be more responsible with sex. Right? Everybody has sex. Let's not act like um, abstinence is the only route that we can have in our life. Everybody has sex. Um, condoms are cheap. I don't want to hear the, the excuse, well, you can't get condoms everywhere. You can. You quite literally can. Any gas station you go into, and I, get, I, kinda, I do kind of get pissed off about this because, our, like I said before, our society and our, my generation specifically has no responsibility for their actions and expects all their actions and expects all their actions and the, the consequences of their actions to be taken care of by somebody else. If you are going to have sex, be safe about it. Wear a condom, take the pill, and it's easier now than ever to get on birth control. It is easier now than ever to, uh, to wear a condom. Men, stop being, stop being little boys. Be safe. If you're, and if you are going to get a man, I'm talking to men too, I'm not just talking to women. Men, if you are going to get a woman pregnant, be, be a man. You, you made that choice. When you decided to have sex, you, you went from being a boy to being a man. You decided to do that, and you decided to take that action. Be a man. If you get the woman pregnant, stay with her, help her through the pregnancy, and you are now going to become a father. You decided to have that sex, and you know, and it's not like it's not like babies can be conceived any other way, right? In a couple, in, in down the road, they can with implanting implanting semen into, into uh, eggs, but right now, pregnancy majority happens through sex. And you know that pregnancy is a potential consequence of having sex. You knowingly do that when you engage in the act. And if you get pregnant, you cannot be surprised that you're pregnant. You can't be like, well, I used a condom. Why am I pregnant? Well, I didn't use a condom. Why am I pregnant? It's a result of sex, right? Now, I understand that condoms and birth control aren't 100% and that, you know, sometimes slip-ups happen, happen. But I believe that, again, this is tying for my Catholic roots. I believe that if you get pregnant after using a condom and, and after being on birth control, it's, it's God telling you, hey, you're meant to be a parent. I'm calling on you to be a, I'm calling on you to be a father. I'm calling on you to be a uh, mother to this child because this child is going to do wonderful things in the world. That's where that, that's where that stems from. Um, but again... Not getting pregnant is easier now than ever. 
put a condom on, be on birth control, be a responsible human being. You know that having sex carries the carries with it the chance of getting pregnant. Um, if you don't want to get pregnant, don't have sex. If you want to have sex and you don't want to get have pregnant, use birth control. Whether that's a pill, whether that's a condom, use birth control. I also think laws that that make it harder. Again, this goes with my free market ability or free market beliefs. I believe that laws that make it harder for women to get on birth control is absolutely ridiculous. That 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 law that was uh, proposed in Ohio that was going to not allow insurances to cover birth control, absolutely ridiculous. Let women use birth control. It should be used as any other medication in our country. It's easy. It's cheap. Um, and it's used for other it's used for other purposes besides you know preventing pregnancies in women. Women also use it for many different hormonal treatments, whether it's depression or uh, weight loss or weight gain or whatever it might be. Uh, so, I I believe our what stems from our disagreements on abortion across our country, whether you're pro life, pro choice, or in the middle, um, is our our differences of when we believe life begins. And our lack of taking responsibility. Now, I think where people on the pro-choice side need to realize is that allowing, you know, allowing abortion up to birth is evil. You are killing a child that could easily live outside of the mother. Um, and that most people in the middle aren't going to agree with that. There's statistics that came out. I retweeted it on my on my Twitter timeline uh, maybe about a week ago, but. Most people agree that abortion after at least the second trimester, I think it's like over 70%, most people don't agree with abortions after the second trimester. Um, so I, I think that there, there are things like that that people on both sides, people on pro-life sides and pro-abortion sides need to take, take notice of. I, I believe that people on the pro-life side can, should be able to reach in the middle and say, if you, if you got pregnant, from incest or rape, or uh, if you had, if you became pregnant from incest or rape, you should be able to terminate the baby. Um, it's a traumatic experience for a mother to carry to carry with them the child of again it is a child the child of the rapist or the child of the person who um, who was who forced you know the child is going to be conceived through incest. It's a very it's a very heavy thing for mother to do. Um, but let's not act like that's why abortions do happen, though. They, they, those make up less than 2% of why abortions happen. Mo the majority of reason, I believe, it's over 80% of abortions happen because they it's easier on the lifestyle for the mother. It's yeah, The mother can go to school if they're not pregnant. The mother can go to school if they don't have a baby at 17. My sister-in-law had a child at 16, and she's a, an amazing mother. I've never questioned her mother. I've never questioned her ability to be a mother, um, and her children are doing wonderful things. Um, take again. Take responsibility. There are things. There are issues on both sides. There are issues that both sides need to take notice of if they want to win over the people in the middle. Um, lastly, uh, last thing I'll kind of touch on because this podcast is closing in on fifty minutes. Um, are my thoughts on the NBA Finals? You know. Uh, last night, the Toronto Raptors uh, eliminated the Milwaukee Bucks. Bucks, dude, you guys blew a 2-0 lead. <laughs> you guys were rolling through. I mean, those games weren't even close. Something happened in Toronto where that, that switch flipped because um, Milwaukee was killing Toronto. Uh, that being said, uh, you know, Toronto's Fred Van Vliet has been on fire. Um, Ka uh, uh, Kawhi is looking to be... Is, is making a statement for maybe being one of the best players. I mean, he is one of the best players in the league. He's making a statement to be the best player in the league. Um, I personally think Kawhi is a much better player than AD, much better player than Kevin Durant. Um, I don't think he's as complete as LeBron is yet. I still I still put LeBron at my at my, um, at my at my top list. I mean, he had a down year this year and he had 27 points. He was 27 points, 8 rebounds, and 8 assists, like something like that. Like, And that's a down year for you? <laughs> I think I think mo I think every NBA player would kill for statistics like that to be their down year. It's absolutely ridiculous. Um, but like I said, you know Toronto has been rolling. Um, their bench is doing great things. Pascal Siakam is going to be an amazing player in f four to five years. I think he's going to be. The, he, you're going to see him emerge as somebody that teams are going to try to trade for. 
because he can lead a team, especially being this young going to the finals. Um, that being said, I do think the Toronto Raptors can push this series to five games. The Warriors are just too good, man. Being a Cavs fan, seeing them dominate the league over the years, the Warriors are just filthy good. They're they're good when Kevin Durant doesn't or doesn't play, and then even when Kevin Durant plays, like they're just too dominant of a team. Until until the trio of Steph, Clay, and Draymond Green is broken up, I think they're gonna their their chances to win a title are they're 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 the favorites to win the title as long as they have that trio. And then, but once you break up that trio, then I believe that will be the fall of the dynasty. But, you know, maybe Toronto can squeak a game out here and there or here or there, but I really don't see them winning this series whatsoever. I think this is going to be another quick finals win for the for the Warriors. Like I said, being a Cavs fan, it pains me to say that. Steph is the greatest three-point shooter ever, one of the best point cards ever out there with Magic. Um, I just don't see how the Toronto Raptors win four games against the Warriors. Uh, unless, you know, of course, barring from serious injury. But um, that's my podcast, guys. That Those are my thoughts. If you guys have any other questions, let me know. My next podcast is going to be talking about education um, and why, why tuition costs are rising and what we can do and what our generation should do going forward on how we can focus on education in the future. Thanks for listening, guys.